joining us online, it's great to have you wherever you are. Uh, thanks, guys. Wherever you are joining us, it's great to have you. Uh, for those of us in this room, it's great to have you as well. If you're a guest or a first-time visitor to Mount Pleasant Church, it is my honor to welcome you to service, and we are glad that you are with us today. Recently, I was reading about a customer who asked the clerk where they could find a Polish sausage. And the clerk said, well, are you Polish? And the guy was clearly offended, and he said, yes, I am, but let me ask you something. If I asked for an Italian sausage, would you ask me if I was Italian? Or if I asked for a German bratwurst, would you ask me if I was German? Or if I asked for a kosher hot dog, would you ask me if I was Jewish? Or if I asked for a taco, would you ask me if I was Mexican? Or what about some whiskey, would you ask me if I was Irish? Well, the clerk said, well, no, probably not. Well, then the man said, well, then why would you ask me if I was Polish, having asked for a Polish sausage? And the man said, because we're at Ace Hardware. <laughs> you know, according to a 2014 study put out by the Barna Group entitled State of the Bible, a few statistics say fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. Fewer than half. Many professing Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples. 60% of Americans cannot name five of the Ten Commandments. 82% of Americans believe God helps those who help themselves is an actual verse in the Bible. 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. And a, survey, and a survey of graduating high school seniors thought, 50%, 50% of high school seniors thought Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. Now, if you don't know very much about the Bible, I, I don't say those things to make you feel stupid. Frankly, it's not your fault. It's probably not your fault. But we are all a product of our culture, and our culture has been in decline for some time. Even though most folks in our culture, most people cannot name one verse in the Bible, several of them can at least think of one. Now, several years ago, it used to be John 3.16, right? They would have it on big boards, and it was plastered at football games, and it was all over the place. But if you were to ask Americans today, if you were just to ask, if you could name one verse, just, just one, what would it be? Most people, even though they couldn't think of maybe a, most people would probably track to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where Jesus says, don't judge or you too will be judged. Isn't that the truth? Several years ago, my wife and I were buying a house in Columbus, Indiana, and we had a, an inspector come to our house and, and look for termites. And while we didn't have termites, we did have some water damage. And so uh, through the course of our kind of walkthrough around the house, he kind of gave me some unsolicited advice about the nature of insects and the way a house has to be treated. He said the queen termite lives deep in the ground and can breed as many as one million termites a year. One million termites a year. And he says that we don't come in and kill the termites. He says we can't, we can't do that. But what we can do, what we can do is set a barrier of protection around your house. And so what we do is drill deep into the ground about every foot, foot and a half, and inject pesticides that deter, that deter the ants and rodents and termites, deter them from coming in the house. In other words, they just go someplace, they go someplace else. He says we don't kill them, but we, but we can control them. And I was thinking about this week because there are some unseen annoyances that can enter the life of a Christian and can eat away at our character. Now, we may have the same facade, we may have the outside, but the core of our being is being damaged by these dangerous pests. And if they're not exterminated, 
they can consume our joy and our commitment and ultimately our testimony. And that is especially true with what we're going to talk about today. So if you have your Bibles, join with me. We are continuing on in our sermon series called Let's Talk About Jesus. And today we are focusing on Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Now, if you remember from where we've been, Jesus is in the middle of his lengthy discourse. It's called the Sermon of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is instructing. And so what we want to do is listen to his words. So why don't you grab your Bibles or your smartphones or whatever it is. Stand with me. And together, let's read. You follow along. I'll read out loud wherever you may be joining us. The Bible says, Jesus says, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Jesus says, don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged with the same measure you use. It will be measured against you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, take out or let me take out the speck in your eye while all the time the plank is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you into pieces. All right, there it is. Now listen to me real quickly as you sit down. This is God's word. This is it. And he wants us to listen to it and he wants us to pay attention and do what it says. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1, he says, don't judge or you too will be judged. But what exactly was Jesus prohibiting? What exactly was Jesus forbidding? Get this, Jesus was not forbidding spiritual discernment. Every time a Christian makes a moral stand on an issue, we hear people say, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge whether it's right or not for a person to live together before they are married? Who are you to judge whether the religions of other cultures are right or wrong? Who are you to judge what I want my sexual orientation to be? Didn't Jesus love everybody? Didn't Jesus say, don't judge or you will be judged? Well, Jesus wasn't saying that Christians should, be, should not be critical of another's behavior. We, we, we should. In fact, Jesus, Jesus often called Herod, or he called Herod, a dangerous fox. He called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. He had confrontation with the money changers in the temple courts. You see, Jesus says a little bit later in our text in Matthew 7, 16, he says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And so while we're not on God's eternal throne, we are to be fruit inspectors here on earth. The Bible says not to be yoked with unbelievers. We are not to fellowship with Christians who are sexual, sexually immoral. We are to beware of false prophets who come in sheep's, sheep's clothing. We are to rebuke our brother who sins, but forgive the one who, reprint, who repents. But how can we do these things if we don't make moral judgments and moral discernments? Now, some of us have to do this every day in our job, right? We have police officers who make arrests. We have courtroom judges who try cases. We have employers who interview and hire people. We have nominating committees that make recommendations. And all of these have to use some sort of discernment. They have to make some sort of judgment. And in this passage, Jesus says, don't cast your pearls to the pigs. But how can you tell the difference between a pig and a sheep if you don't make some sort of moral judgment? But Jesus is not, Jesus is not forbidding constructive criticism either. 
Constructive criticism is essential in our world because there are potholes in the road and there are weeds in the garden. There are loopholes in the law. And God has given us a critical mind to spot that which is wrong and try to correct it. And honestly, I'm glad, I'm glad that someone has been critical of like the automobile industry, right? Because we have headrest and we have seat belts and we have airbags and we have crash proof cages. A lot of these things make travel and cars safer due to constructive criticism. And I oftentimes get irritated with the press for being overly negative, but because the, fre- because the press has the freedom to criticize the government, it's kept a number of politicians on their toes. Criticism is necessary in a, healthy, in a healthy society, and when people lose that freedom to criticize, the culture begins to decline. And you can look back at history and see this happen time and time and time again. Jesus did not say, take the plank out of your own eye and then leave your brother to suffer alone. He said, no, then you'll be able to clearly help him and get the speck out of his eye. But what was Jesus prohibiting? Jesus is prohibiting the sin of hypercriticism. Hypercriticism. And hypercriticism can be defined this way. It's the habit of searching for little things wrong in people and delighting in, delighting in condemning them. So it's the habit of searching for little things wrong with other people and delighting in condemning them. Those, with, those who suffer from this, those who have this, will seek the 2% wrong. Even though 98% is great and wonderful, they will find the 2% wrong, and they will just go after it. I think Jesus is talking about the husband who ignores the fact that his wife is affectionate and that she's a good mother and a faithful employee and a pleasant personality, and he just criticizes her constantly for her overweight. Or maybe he's talking about the single person who demands such, perfections, such perfection in other people that they really have no in-depth relationships because of too many surface judgments. Or I think he's talking about the church member who goes to church and picks away at everything in the service and everything in leadership. It's too hot in here. It's too cold. I don't like the music. I don't like that shirt. And then they go home and criticize others having received little or nothing from the service itself. He's talking about the employee who behind the scenes is working at nibbling away at the faults of the leader and the flaws of the support staff, and there's just this critical, irritating spirit, and it just wears on people. John Wesley was a very colorful reformer, and he lived several years ago, but he was also a very fashionable dresser. At one time, he was preaching in a very contemporary bow tie that had long streamers on both sides. And there was a woman in the audience who was, clearly in, in, uh, who was clearly offended by that. She didn't hear a word he said, but after service, she came up and said, can I give you some criticism? And he said, sure. He said, your bow t- or she said, your bow tie is entirely too long and is evidence of worldliness to me. So he turned and asked for a pair of scissors, giving the woman the scissors. And he said, well, why don't you, why don't you snip these down to size then? And she did. And she cut them to her liking, and she snipped off a couple of inches on both sides and handed the scissors back. To which John Wesley said, would you stick out your tongue? It's entirely too long and is evidence of worldliness to me. (laughs) You know, I, I think we're all guilty at times of having tongues that are too long when it comes to criticism. But why do we do that? Why do we criticize others? Why do we seek that which is wrong? Why do we feel we've got to have this movie critic idea that everything's a thumbs up or a thumbs down to everything we see. 
Well, one reason, I think, is because of guilt. Criticism oftentimes is our own guilty conscience. Remember when David, remember when David was a boy and he went to visit his brothers who were, who were in the army and they were about to face Goliath? Remember this story? David goes to visit his brothers and when he gets there, he says uh, he was appalled. The Bible says that he was appalled that this Philistine, this uncircumcised, uncircumcised Philistine Goliath was mocking the armies of God. And so David asked, well, why doesn't somebody fight him? And Eliab, David's older brother, became very critical of David. He said, why aren't you at home tending the sheep? Who's taking care of your job responsibilities as you are here? He said, I know how conceited your heart is and how wicked you are. You came here just to watch the battle. Criticism hurts. It hurts when it comes from someone close to you, like, like David's brother. It hurts a whole lot more when it comes from someone over you, like a parent or an, or an older brother. But it hurts the most when somebody attacks your motives. And the Bible says that Eliab was the natural one. He was the tallest and the strongest. He was the natural one to go and fight Goliath. But he didn't do it. He wanted no part of the battle. And so he criticized David's motive for even suggesting that someone should go and fight. You see, we don't want to admit our own failures. Nobody wants to do that. We don't want to admit that we've got a log sticking out of our eye, so we make others feel better by, or so, I'm sorry, so we make ourselves feel better by exaggerating the faults of others and ignoring our own. We don't want to admit our failures. We don't want to admit that we've got a log sticking out of our eye, so we make ourselves feel better by exaggerating the faults of others and ignoring our own. The reformer John Scott, John Stott said, um, what we're often doing when we do this is we are judging our own selves vicariously. He says, we do that so that we can experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penitence. We judge others and we see our faults in them. And so instead of, we like to judge them. You know, another reason we criticize is because of envy. Jesus was absolutely perfect in every way, absolutely so, but he was a victim of constant criticism. He didn't observe the Sabbath correctly. He didn't wash his hands before he ate. He was too liberal about the Gentiles. He was too conservative about divorce, but the real problem, the religious leaders didn't like him, the real problem was because they were envious of his popularity, and so they sought to discredit him. And if you get jealous of somebody else, you're inclined to look at their faults instead of rejoicing with them. That's why the more successful you are in your field, the more vulnerable you are to criticism. Envious people seek to exalt themselves and tear others down. They have this strange idea that they're going to look bigger if they can make the person on the pedestal look smaller. But another reason why we're critical of other people is ego. It's because of ego. You know, we're living in a time where it's the end thing to do to be critical. We pay people to be movie critics and sports critics and political critics and food critics. We pay people to do all kinds of things. If a, if a newspaper reporter writes a positive story, then he is seen as a naive cheerleader. But if he writes a negative story, he's considered an in-depth professional and may be considered for a journalism award. And if you turn the spotlight on the negative in a conversation, you will get a crowd. People will come to listen, and you will be labeled as courageous and perceptive. And it's a sure way to get attention because people will listen to you. 
But eventually, this critical hypercriticism will backfire on you, and you will be judged by the same way you judge others. People will be turned off by your negativity. Remember, the Bible says that pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit goes before a fall. But why is it wrong to criticize? Why is it wrong? Why was Jesus so against this fault-finding? Well, obviously, he condemned it because it's harmful to the person being criticized. It's harmful to the person being criticized. Even though you talk behind somebody's back, eventually, most of the time, it has a way of filtering back to their ears. People are hurt by criticism. Reputations are ruined and leaders are discouraged and jobs are lost because no matter how thick-skinned you may be, criticism hurts and it damages and it discourages. Even if it doesn't get back to their ears, you are reducing and hurting the reputation and the effectiveness of that person. You undermine their credibility. The Bible says in Romans chapter 14, verse 13, in your notes, write this down. This is a good one. It's not on the screen. Romans 14, 13, the Bible says, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make your mind up not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in your brother's way. The Bible says, let's stop passing judgment on others. It's time to stop. My dad, who's my hero in every way, um, has been the pastor of my home church for 38 years. He's still my pastor, my dad is. He's been there for 38 years, and one of the primary reasons is, is because there are so many people around him who are positive and supporting, and they really love my parents. But my dad can't be at a church like that for almost 40 years without experiencing criticism too. Some people don't like everything he has done. In fact, my dad, in retrospect, I bet hasn't liked most things or some of the things that he's done, he's done either. But a preacher who, has been at the, who preached at the same church for over 50 years wrote this. He said, the minister needs to make up his mind early, whether he's going to run and catch it or stay and take it. And my dad stayed, much like Pastor Chris, he stayed. And dad has told me that over the years, he's had a lot of younger ministers come to him who are just really discouraged. And you know, over and over again, the discouragement is the same thing. They asked my dad, how do you live with criticism? It's their churches are growing and the Lord is moving and people are being brought to the Lord and 98% of the church is positive. But that 2%, people just wear on them and grind them down and it disheartens and it has ruined many churches. Ruined. Galatians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, the Bible says, the entire law is summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But get this. But if you keep biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed. Did you get that? The whole law is summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you keep acting this way, watch out because you will be destroyed. Now, nothing has split more churches or broken more families or discouraged more leaders or alienated more friendships than a spirit of backbiting and fault finding. People who have been Christians for years see nothing wrong with condemning some minor fault they find in another and never understanding that their criticism does a whole lot more damage than the inconsistencies that they're pointing out. And that is so true. But maybe the worst result of criticism is the damage it does to the critic. It's the damage it does to the critic. Jesus said, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged when you stand before God. And we all want God to be merciful to us, and so we need to be merciful to others. But this verse has a very present-day application as well. Criticism 
can devour your personality and make your life miserable. It just has a way of doing it. It can devour your personality and it can make your life miserable. So no matter how lovely your home, no matter how wonderful your family, no matter how compassionate your friends, no matter how great your country or how fulfilling your job or how terrific your church, you just begin to focus on what's wrong and you gripe and criticize and that will eventually replace your peace and contentment and you will be eaten away and you will be miserable and people won't want to hang out with you. I heard about a woman who went to a hardware store and she criticized everything on the shelf Every aisle she went down, she had something to complain about. Finally, she came to some new brooms, and she says these brooms will never hold up. Their structure is so unstable. The straw is not dependable. The handle is too rough. I don't know what purpose these brooms would have or why anyone would want to buy them. So the clerk said, why don't you take one right at home and see if it's any good? (laughs) Now, you you may get attention by being critical, but people will lose respect for you in the long run and you end up hurting yourself. So what's the solution? What's the solution to this hypercritical mind, this hypercriticism that Jesus is is speaking out against? Well, I think it's a good one. I think it's it's tough, right? But the first thing that we need to do, the first thing that we can do to control criticism is to recognize the wickedness of it. Recognize the wickedness of it. Let's quit rationalizing and excusing ourselves. Some people say, well, Chad, I'm just, I'm just a perfectionist. I like things to be right, and God has given me the gift of criticism. Well, I hate to tell you, but that's not really in the Bible. You know, it's one thing to demand perfection from yourself, but it's something completely different to demand perfection from others. It's just not the way we're wired. We all have sinful habits. We all fail. No one, no one is perfect. And through this, we all seem to be hurt. And and when we are, we have this innate ability just to reach out and make others feel as hurt as we are. David prayed in Psalm 139, 23. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there is any wicked way in me. Recognize the wickedness of it. And secondly, we need to repent. Repent repent means to go in the opposite direction. It's going in the opposite direction. So instead of saying, well, I'm going to zip my lips and not say anything, what you need to do is look for the positive things to say and express the positive things. The word encourage literally means to instill courage. That's what it means. So you look for positive, encouraging things to say. And when you're positive, when you're encouraging, you are instilling boldness and courage into people's lives. You speak life into other people when we're encouraging. That's what, that's what we do. There's a book. It's called The Carrot Principle. And it's, a, it's, it's, not a, it's not really a Christian book. It's not written for the church. It's actually a business book written on business perspectives. Um, but they, they, um, they looked at what helps businesses grow the most. What, what helps businesses keep their employees? What's the one thing employees want from their, from their bosses? And, and what they found was, is that encouragement, this is a book called The Carrot Principle, that encouragement is the missing, it's the hidden missing accelerator that can do so much for the business. And so they interviewed over 200,000 people over a 10-year period, 200,000 people, and they just asked them questions about their bosses and about their business, not the products they were selling, not per se what their job responsibilities were, but just the work environment itself. And here's what they found, that 94.4% of employees who report high work morale 
say that their bosses and managers show appreciation and give encouragement. 95% of people say the work environment is great because my boss or my manager shows appreciation and gives encouragement. But get this, 79% of employees who left their job, 79% say that the reason they left was a lack of appreciation and encouragement from their direct boss. A lack. 80% of people leave because they don't feel encouraged and they don't feel part of the team. 56% of employees who report low work morale give their managers low marks for encouragement. And the carrot principle concludes this way. It says that the simple act of a leader expressing appreciation to a person in a meaningful way is the missing accelerator that can do so much but is used so sparingly. Encouragement can do so much but it's used so sparingly. Now just think if we were to bring that into the lives of our children, or into the lives of our neighbors, or into the lives of this church, where we speak encouragement to others. It can do so much, but is so rarely used. But the greatest psychology, the greatest psychology in the world, the world is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. The Bible says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, and admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul says, think about the good things and encourage that. See the good and think about and honor and honor that. Then thirdly, before you criticize someone, put yourself in their place. Ezekiel the prophet was about to go to the nation of Israel and, and just announce and just, uh, and just criticize the nation for how they've been. But then he said this, he said, I sat where they sat and I sympathized with them. My very first summer um, in Bible college, I was a youth intern. I was working at a church part-time in Tallahassee, Florida, and I was um, at Tri-State Christian Camp in the Panhandle of Florida, and we were at summer camp, and much like Mount Pleasant, we sent a truckload of kids, and it was just so much fun, but on the very first day, we were playing baseball, and I got a little annoyed with a, with a guy on my team. This little boy, he hit the baseball, and it grounded to second base, and he picked it up and threw it to first base, and he was out, Right? And I felt he wasn't sacrificing for the team. He didn't run the ground ball out. He didn't try his best. He just kind of went through the motions. You know what I mean? Just kind of going through the motions. So I made sure to tell him how I felt about that. Then afterwards, another faculty member came up to me and said, you know, that boy was born with a birth defect, and one leg is not as long as the other one. And I just melted. He really was doing the best that he could do. But I didn't put myself in his place. And so the first thing I had to do was just kind of pop off some critical words. Why didn't you do this? And you should have done that. And I didn't have the whole picture. You know, we have such partial knowledge of what people are really dealing with. That we're sometimes not capable of making judgments because we don't know the full story. We don't know what paralyzes people. We don't know about their chemical imbalances. We don't know what their home life, is, home life is like. We don't know about their temperaments or their temptations. Only God knows that. And in the meantime, we need to be patient and try to understand. My point is this. Instead of just popping off critical comments, wait till you get the facts. Put yourself in their position. Sit where they sit before you criticize. Well, the next thing we need to do is we need to pray for them. We can pray for them. Jesus knew that Simon Peter was a, had a very fickle uh, character, right? I mean, you know this. Peter was hot, and then he was cold, and he was loud, and he was quiet, then he was very anxious to do something, and then sometimes would kind of cower back. He was very up and down, left and right the entire time, and Jesus knew this. And so Jesus goes to Peter right, right at the very end. He, goes, uh, he said, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. That's what he said. 
He goes, but I have prayed for you that you might not fall into temptation. And I think one of the reasons that Jesus was so quick to reinstate and to forgive Peter was that he honestly prayed for him. You see, it's really difficult. It's really difficult to pray for the success of someone else and then be stern and hypercritical of them. It's very difficult to pray for them and to hold them up and then be very critical of their actions and how they are. It's very difficult. But if we sincerely pray for the well-being of another, we will look for the best, not the worst. And fifthly, lastly, the thing that we can do is um, we need to confront them personally and in love. Confront them personally and in love. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his faults. And then it puts this, just between the two of you. Just between the two of you. If I have a mistake, if you have a mistake, my hope would be is that the two of us, the two of us would work it out. Not the 50 of us, right? Not after I've gotten advice from everybody who I roll with, but just the two of us. You go and you talk to that person directly, not behind their back, not so that it becomes a problem, but directly. Don't tell everybody else. Tell the person. I um, was a youth minister under my father-in-law back in Fort Myers some, some years ago, and I was very excited. My father-in-law uh, is, a, is a great godly man, and he, he really helped me kind of become the person I am. He gave me opportunity to speak in church, and he gave me the, the chance to kind of develop my skill and my craft. And, um, you know, many of you know I'm, I'm, I'm not that smart. I'm not special in any way. I'm just, I'm just a guy. But he, was, he allowed me an opportunity to speak. And, and, and through the course of that, there was this guy in the church who was a retired English teacher, and um, he, was a, he was a good guy, but he, he was very sharp on the use of the English language. In fact, one time after I got done speaking, he came up to me. I actually went back in my notes and, and looked at this. He said, Chad, I think you're doing a great job, and I don't want to make a bigger deal out of this, but if you use incorrect English, it can be a, turrent, a deterrent to someone who hears the gospel. That's what he said to me. So it's a, it's a deterrent. Your, your bad use of English is a, is a deterrent. And at first, I was very hurt by this, right? I mean, I was like, John, what is your deal, right? I mean... Good gracious. Um, but later, later, once, you know, a couple of days later, after talking to some people and really kind of having some moments, I kind of understood that he, he really had my best interest. So I went back to him and said, John, I want to give you permission the next couple of times that I'm up to just come to me and tell me when I have made a mistake and, you know, and let me know because I don't want to, I don't want to do it twice. He said, fine. The next time I preached, he came up to me <laughs> and he said, he said, Chad, I just got to tell you, you said earnest health problems, his health problems had reoccurred. He said, there's no such word as reoccurred, it's recur. And I got a little defensive, but he was right, and that mistake will not recur. <laughs> so, so. You see, it's so much better for him to come to me than going home and criticizing me to 10 different people. He helps me. He roots for me. And if someone is courageous enough to come to you with some blind spot in your life, you'd be foolish if you don't listen to them. You'd be foolish. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8, the Bible says, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. No one likes criticism. But criticism, if it's valid, is later appreciated. And remember, before you go to take the speck out of someone else's eye, Remember that the eye is one of the most sensitive parts of the body. And you better be real gentle and real careful when you do because it can be sensitive. Now, I understand. I understand that this is a difficult subject. 
And for many of us, the hypercriticism might not be our deal, but I know this, we all have faults, we all have sins, and we all have unrepentant hearts at times. Jesus says, before you go, examine yourself. Take the plank out of your own eye so that you will be able to see clearly and remove the speck from your brother's eye. What's Jesus saying? He's saying you need to confess your sin and get your life right so that you can go and help your brother or your sister or whomever it may be take the next spiritual step in their development. And that is removing something so that they can see clearly too. We need to confess and repent and make sure that we're right with the Lord so that we can take the next step and help somebody else in their spiritual development. Do you really care for the person or are you just looking for a way to cut them down? Are you going to correct them in love or are you just going to vent your anger? Have you forgiven that person who wronged you or are you out just seeking revenge? Jesus says, judge others the way you want them to judge you. And honestly, that's exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. He had every right to judge, but instead, he came in mercy and in love and with grace, gave his life on the cross, and he overlooked our faults, and he meets our needs. It's exactly what he did. And today, we have that very same opportunity. We have the opportunity to confess to the Lord, Lord, I need you. Search me. I need you. And then in return, confess our sin and repent and turn our ways so that we can help others take the next spiritual step in their development. Now, today, our response time is going to be just a little bit different. It's going to be just a little bit different. And instead of having the kind of the, the traditional time that we have with the decision counselors up front, we're going to have an introspective moment, a time where you, a time for you to spend time with the Lord and just ask the Lord, Lord, search my heart, search me, test me, and show me if there's any wicked way in me. And we're going to have an opportunity to confess our sin to the Lord privately, by ourselves, privately and silently. We can confess so that we can remove the plank from our eye so that we can help our brother take the next spiritual step by helping them remove something from their eye. Are you with me on this? And so here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. I don't even know where my phone is. I want you to take your phone out or your tablet, or if you, know, if you don't have one, you want to go old school, you can always use a piece of paper and a pen. You can always use it in the back of the bulletin outline. You, know, you can use that too. But as the band leads us in this song, and after you've had a chance to sit quietly and pray, I want you to write down whatever it is that the Lord reveals to you. But I think, I know, because I'm, I'm speaking for me personally, I have some things that I need to confess to the Lord. And so I'm hoping, I'm expecting just like the last service, that the Lord would reveal to me exactly what it is that I need to confess. And then I want you to write what that is. Lord, I confess this, or Lord, I need your help this, or Lord, could you help me in this? And then when you're done, just turn your flashlight on and stand up and, and hold it up. And we're gonna let this place be illuminated by our confessions as the Lord offers his grace to us. But I know it can be a bit humbling. I know it can be a bit hard for how do we start? What, what are some prayers of confession? What could that look like? Well, I wrote a couple down to maybe just kind of get you thinking a little bit. Here's one right here. Lord, I confess to you and others that I'm a judgmental and critical person. Please forgive me and help me to love others as you love them. I need that. I need that right now in this place. Help me, Lord, to love others and to see other people the same way that you see them. Not through critical eyes, 
but through loving and, and grace-filled eyes. Here's an, another one. I confess to you, Father, that my heart has hardened against you. Please soften my heart that I might not sin against you. Who doesn't need that, right? Who doesn't? But more specific, more, more intentional, more on topic here. Father, I confess to you that I'm dealing with addiction issues. And these are keeping me from experiencing your best. Please forgive me. Whatever it is, it doesn't have to be one of these. I want you to make it your own because everybody's different. Wherever you are, in this room or joining us online, everybody's different. Everybody's walking through something different. But whatever it is, we need to remove the plank from our eye so that we can help our brother remove what's in theirs and ultimately we both take the next spiritual step in our development of becoming more Christ-like. So the band's gonna play and you're gonna have some time and when you're done, just stand up, hold your paper up and, or turn your flashlight on and then we'll continue.